right, well, good morning again. Good to see you guys this morning. We're going to make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. So if you guys want to take out your Bibles, uh, if you don't have one, there should be one close to you in a seat pocket in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, uh, congratulations, you've got yourself a Bible right there in front of you. So you can take that home. Let me just uh, fill you in on where we've been thus far through our journey in 1 Corinthians. And I'm excited about chapter 12 for several reasons. Uh, first of all, I'm excited because up to this point, Paul, through these first 11 chapters, and I talked about this in the introduction, he writes from a place of correction. So he's writing to a church that's been struggling, and he's writing in a way to try to correct behavior that is wrong or thinking that is flawed. And what we found so far is this church was tore up from the floor up. I mean, they had a tremendous amount of issues happening inside of the church. And so for these first 11 chapters, what Paul is really doing is he's dealing with a mess on his hands. And so he is addressing these one at a time. And in many ways, lots of these things made us feel very uncomfortable. Why? Well, because uh, there are messy parts that we're all dealing with individually and, and also corporately. But as we make the transition from chapter 11 to chapter 12, you're going to notice the tone of Paul's letter to change. He's going to go from a corrective tone to more of a constructive tone. And so now he's got things that he wants to, yes, instruct them on, but he wants to encourage them in. And in particular, as we have made our way now through uh, chapter 7, dealing with marriage and divorce and slavery, and then we dealt with uh, Christian liberties in chapters 8 through 10. Last week we looked at church conduct in chapter 11, that now through these next several chapters, he's going to talk specifically about spiritual gifts. And so for uh, chapters 12 through 14, Paul is going to address questions or actually give them constructive uh, feedback on how they're to handle spiritual gifts. And we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 12. And as we read through this, understand that the Corinthian church was a very, very gifted church. The Lord had blessed them. They were, as you might say, in the gifted program. As people would look at their church, they would go, wow, they've been gifted in so many different ways. They've had so many blessings poured out on them. But as Paul begins to write here in verse 1, he says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be without understanding. Why? Because, well, they were ignorant as it related to their spiritual gifts. And so Paul begins here in verse 1, he says, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And now, in most of your Bibles, as you read that, now concerning spiritual gifts, and I should uh, give this morning's message a bit of a preface here, uh, I'm going to talk a lot about what Paul actually wrote in the Greek. And so for many of you, you're like, oh, Greek. I didn't come to hear Greek. Well, here's the reason why it's so very valuable, because Paul is trying to address their ignorance. He's talking about things they do not understand. And so to go back into the original language, the way in which Paul wrote it, we have to have this to be able to understand what he's trying to communicate to the church. So as we look here at verse 1, for many of your Bibles, the word gifts is italicized. And I've mentioned this to you before, that the reason this is italicized is because it's not in the original uh, script. It's not in the original letter. But as the letter is translated from Greek to English, those who translated the letter thought that by inserting this word, it might help us understand it a little bit more clearly. But if you go back to what Paul actually wrote, he says, now concerning 
spirituals, or the word in the Greek is uh, pneumatikos. It's, it's dealing with the entire realm of the supernatural. You might notice the word uh, pneuma is in there. It's where we get our word pneumatic from. It, it's dealing with those things of the air or that of the supernatural realm. And so already some of you are like, it's going to be weird. It's not going to be weird because we're going to have understanding as we go through the message today. But these things that are supernatural in nature, they defy uh, logic. They defy understanding, the what we can understand with our human reasoning. Now, as Paul has started off the, the message today saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, he says the same kind of phraseology in several different sections of his letters throughout the New Testament. In particular, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which we covered a few weeks back, where Paul doesn't want them to be ignorant concerning uh, Old Testament typology. He went through Old Testament stories and says, this is how this translates into your life as a New Testament Christian. I don't want you to be ignorant of that. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul addresses specifically the rapture of the church. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about the second coming of Christ. And so he, he lays it out there for them in 1 Thessalonians 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about the tactics of Satan. What's Satan going to use to try to trip you up? He says, I don't want you to be ignorant to his tactics. And then lastly, Romans chapter 11, as he's addressing God's plan for Israel. He says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning how God's viewing the Jewish people and what he's going to do through them throughout history. And so as Paul explains these things and as he brings these things to light and says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Uh, there's maybe no more ignorant topics that have been thought about and discussed throughout church history than these things right here. <laughs> these, are, these are areas where we have a tremendous amount of ignorance. It's, we lack understanding. And so what we're going to hope to do over the next several weeks and Anytime we come across these texts is explain it so we no longer have to live in ignorance, that we can actually have understanding. We at least have a foothold on what Paul is trying to uh, get them to understand. And it's amazing that still to this day, these are topics that we struggle with. And so we continue in verse 2. He says, you know that you were Gentiles that carried away, excuse me, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols however you were led. So what he says is, in your previous life, before you came to know Christ, you were uh, spun up and carried away by idolatry. You lived a life of idolatry. Now what would idolatry look like? Uh, Isaiah does a good job of explaining idolatry in Isaiah 44, verse 14. For the one who worships an idol, he says, he, he cuts down the cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it, and then it shall be for a man to burn, and he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. In verse 18, they do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. So what Isaiah is describing about idolatry, we often think we don't understand what it's like to have 
an idolatrous relationship. We don't, we don't get idolatry, but understand with me, it's anything you put above God in your life that has become an idol. And here's one of the big danger zones with idolatry. It means no rest. Anytime you see idolatry in Scripture, it directly corresponds to you not being able to rest. And the reason for that is it's completely and totally dependent upon you. It is dependent upon you to plant the seed, to raise up the tree, to cut down the tree, to split the wood, to carve an idol, to bake the bread, to then worship the God, to fall down before it, to then rely upon a piece of dumb wood to take care of us. So this is what Isaiah is communicating, and this is what Paul's saying. You were delivered from that life of dumb idolatry, of a life where it was all about you, whatever you could produce, however you could keep up with things. And so there is no rest in that. Now he continues in verse 3 by saying, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul here gives us a little bit of a tip on how to discern and understand if someone is speaking from the Holy Spirit or they're speaking from some other evil spirit. And here's one question we can ask. Um, Is Jesus being glorified in this thing? Is Jesus the object of affection and glorification? Because if it is anyone else, it's not coming from Him. But if it is Jesus, then it is Him who is being reflected, then it is therefore from the Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus says in John chapter 15 helps shed a little bit of a light on this with relation to the function of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 15, verse 26. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. So what is the Spirit constantly doing? The Holy Spirit is constantly testifying that Jesus is Lord. This is who He is always pointing back to. He's not glorifying Himself, but He is pointing all glory to the man. And so this is the case. When when gifts are properly used. They will not glorify a man, but they will glorify the man, Christ Jesus. Now, as we continue in verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And so there are differences of gifts. There are many diversities of gifts. And the word here is the word uh, charisma in the Greek. And and that word sounds familiar, but it, it should even be more familiar to you if you look at it in its written form, because you'll see the word charis at the beginning. It it means graces. And so you might recall, as Paul opens all his letters, what does he say to the people? But grace and peace to you. Charis and shalom. And so he he gives them this greeting of grace. What he is writing here is there are diversities, many different kinds of graces that are given. And, And what is a grace but unmerited favor? It's not getting what we do deserve. It's, it's, excuse me, a, a grace is getting what we do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. There, I got it straight. But a grace is an unmerited favor. It's receiving something that we didn't deserve, we didn't earn, we didn't work our way in order to be able to deserve whatever the Spirit has decided to impart upon us. And so this is a grace that is given. And what Paul says is there's many differences of graces that are given to believers. Now, it's not based upon any kind of work of my flesh. But at the end of this verse, he says, but of the same Spirit. 
You're going to see this phrase saying seven different times in these verses. Paul is trying to communicate. The Holy Spirit is trying to get us to understand that while we might receive a diversity of grace, might receive many different gifts, you guys are all snowflakes. You're all wonderful in your own right. Good job. But as you're very diverse, His Spirit is the same. There is an element of sameness, of consistency, of trustworthiness that exists in the Holy Spirit. And so while the gifts are different, there's encouragement in knowing that He is the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I take a lot of encouragement in that because for me personally, I'm all over the map. I'm this way, I'm that way. I'm up, I'm down. You, one day to the next. I mean, I never know how I'm going to feel. And I assume that many of you are that way as well. And so there is a trustworthiness that happens when we realize He is the same. So as the gifts that are given are going to be different and diverse, there is a sameness that happens, an integrity that we get from the Lord. Now, verse 5. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Now, the word ministries is going to look familiar to you as well when it pulls up here on the screen in verse 5 because it's the Greek word diakonia. It's where we get our word deacon from. And so for the deacons, when they were first introduced in Acts chapter 7, what they actually were were table waiters. They were essentially those that were called to be able to wait on the widows inside the church. And so the first deacons were called to just simply minister. And so as Paul is writing here, he's saying there are differences of gifts, but there are also differences of ministries. There are differences given in how these gifts can be ministered to people, but the same Lord. Verse 6, and there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. And so there are different activities. The word here is the word Energema, it means to energize, just like a, a battery. You're given uh, energy, but it's given from God. And so we have gifts given by the Spirit. We have ministries given by the Lord. We have energies given by God. Now this, I believe, is key to helping us understand what Paul is writing to and helps clear up some of the confusion around this entire topic because what we find is uh, gifts that are listed out here in 1 Corinthians 12, as well as Romans chapter 12, uh, they are given to us so that we can minister. And then what the different ministries look like that are given by the Son are listed out in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. And so the fivefold ministry of Christ, given by Jesus, are these abilities to be able to minister. And I know as I read that, there are some of you that go, you know what, I, I don't have any of those things. I'm old for five. I don't, I don't fall in any of these categories. But let me just share this with you. Um, for many of you, by way of example, um, maybe some of you are in a spot where you've raised your children. Some of you ladies, I'll pick on you in particular. For some of you ladies, you might be in a spot where you've raised your children. You've gotten them out of the household. But as you think back to the years when you were raising them, when you were bringing them up, um, there, there were times where it got really hard, really difficult. And maybe in that moment, the Lord gave to you a word of 
knowledge. He gave you a word of knowledge out of Scripture that He he wrote on the tablet of your heart. And it, it might have been the thing that pulled you out of that very difficult season you were in when raising your children. And now, as you gather together in this body, you might have run into a younger mom, one with smaller kids. And man, you, you can see by the look on her face when she gets here on Sunday morning, she is in the middle of it. I mean, it is a full-on firefight, and she's just hanging on, baby. And so as you see that, Maybe the Lord has put on your heart to share, to impart that word of knowledge. And when you do that, you know what you're doing? You're teaching. You're actually exercising a ministry of teaching for someone by giving them a word of knowledge that you have previously received. And so in this spot, you've taken a gift of the Spirit, a word that you've received, and now you're able to minister to someone else. But here's the hang-up. Here's what oftentimes uh, stops us. Man, I don't know if I'm bold enough to share that. I don't know if I've got the courage to be able to say anything in this spot. I, I don't know. I'm tired. I'm worn out with my own deal. I don't know if I've got enough energy. Well, here's the promise of the Father. He will give you energy to be able to share that. And so a gift can then be given a ministry, can then be given energy as the Father gives us courage, energema, to be able to step into that spot and go, Lord, I'm just going to trust you in this place that you're going to give me the energy to be able to share. Now, you're like, wow, that was a lot. What, what is the purpose of all this? Like, why, why would we need all of this? I'm so glad you asked. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. The reason the Lord would give us a gift and give us a ministry and then give us uh, an energy to be able to share that with someone else is for others. It's so that someone else can benefit. Maybe it's a shared experience, but so often what happens is the Lord puts us in very natural circumstances so that He can give us something supernatural to share with them in a very natural way. See, oftentimes the Lord takes and He uses the practical things to make way for the spiritual to happen. And we find this all the time. He takes a very natural circumstance and He infuses the supernatural in the middle of that so that someone can be encouraged for the benefit of all. Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. He's giving the promise of the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says, but you shall receive power. You might remember that word is dynamite. It's dynamite power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. The reason the Spirit gives us dynamite power isn't for our own use, our own good. It's actually to be witnesses to others. It's to come alongside others, to be an encouragement to others. It's all about the benefit of all. This is the reason the Spirit is manifested or made known. And so we continue with the gifts of the Spirit. Verse 8, for one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. And so the first spiritual gift is the word of wisdom. Now understand, this is a supernatural ability to understand and to problem solve. And the Spirit can give this to us at any point that He so chooses. If you go back to John chapter 8, or you can just mark it down in your Bible, this is the story where Jesus is teaching there in the temple courts. And as He's teaching in John chapter 8, He's presented with a problem. 
You see, the Pharisees have drugged a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, you can just let that settle in, what this scene might look like. She was caught in the act. So they must have thrown a towel on her. Who knows what the situation is? They bring her in and they throw her in front of Jesus. And they say, now, what are you going to do about that? What, what, are you going to, what says you about this woman who's caught in this act? Now, notice there was no uh, man. And what you guys know is it takes two to tango. So already right there, there's an issue with this situation. Now, Jesus, uh, they feel like they put him in a box because he's only got two things he can say. He could first of all say, well, uh, the law of Moses says to take her out to the edge of town and to stone her and the man to death. That's what the law says. And if he says that, uh, you know what? That lacks completely uh, any kind of grace. That lacks any kind of forgiveness. So if Jesus says that, he has no grace, he has no forgiveness. Now, secondly, he could say, uh, you need to just forgive her. Uh, We're not going to condemn her whatsoever. Now, if he would have said that, that would have made him a lawbreaker one who condones sin. And so, knowing that Jesus is neither one of these things, here's how he answers. He says, um, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And then he goes back to scratching something on the ground. We don't know what he was writing. But he says, whoever in this group is without sin, you pick up a rock and you start this thing. What we know from John 8 is that from the oldest to the youngest, I think that's interesting, the old men they knew first, they just walk away. And Jesus looks up from scratching on the ground. He looks at the woman and he says, hey, where's everybody that was going to condemn you? She says, it's just you and I. You're the only one left. The only one that was actually without sin was the one left. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. But then he adds his part, go and sin no more. Cut it out. Get this thing fixed in your life. And so here's Jesus with this supernatural wisdom that he's able to infuse and guess what he has now given that opportunity to his body of believers and this is what we need we need this gift of wisdom to come down from him and to flow out into the body i don't know about you but i could always use a word of wisdom i'm looking for wisdom out there and so this comes from the lord now secondly to another the word of knowledge through the same spirit this word of knowledge is a gift that again it's supernatural in nature because it's an understanding about a situation that you would have no way of knowing about. You would have no real way to be able to know what's happening, and yet the Lord can, through the Spirit, give us the ability to have knowledge about a situation. And a spot that we can jump into in Scripture is in Acts chapter 5. Now in Acts chapter 5, the church has just started up. It started in Acts chapter 2. Things are moving along, and there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Everybody's given money to the church, and they've gone out and they've sold a piece of property, made a bunch of money, and they've brought it to the church, and they have claimed that they're giving all that they've sold this property for for the church. Look how great we're doing. Except the issue is um, they didn't really give it all. They claimed that they did, but they kept just a little back for them. Just a little back for me. I'm not going to give everything. And what Peter says in verse 3, and Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so Peter would have no way of knowing that they didn't 
uh, give everything that they'd sold the ground for, except the Spirit had communicated to them, that they had held some back. And, and here's the deal. It wasn't that they were uh, being chastised. Actually, Ananias is going to lose his life in the very next verse. Verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. I mean, that kind of stops a church service in his tracks, right? I mean, boom, guy falls dead for lying. But the issue wasn't just that he lied. The issue was that it was so destructive to the early church. You see, this kind of manipulation and division that comes about because of lies and, and those things that infiltrate into a, a church that was just getting started, into a movement, could have had vast issues on down the line. And so the Lord took a very hard-line stance against this kind of corruption right off the bat. It doesn't mean that everybody that comes into church that lies, thankfully, uh, just drops dead. But in this spot, this is how the Lord chose to deal with this situation. But it was for the benefit of the overall body of believers for this word of knowledge. And so the word of knowledge is most often given through the word of God. That's important for us to know that the word of knowledge is most often given through the word of God, which means if you desire a word of knowledge, you have to be in the word. You're likely not going to get a word of knowledge unless you spend time in the text. And so we see this word of knowledge as a gift. Now, continuing in verse 9, to another faith by the same spirit. And so now we have the gift of faith. Important to understand, this is beyond uh, just a regular measure of faith. Romans 12 says, to each is given a measure of faith. So for every one of us, we're given a measure of faith. And that faith can be exercised by us believing that Jesus is Christ, that He is the risen Lord. And by this faith, we are saved. So it's by grace through faith that we are saved. And the Lord has given to each a measure of faith. But there are some who are given a a supernatural dose of faith. Those that are called to step out in faith, like the Apostle Peter who was called to step out of the boat in faith. The Lord looked to him and said, come here. He gave him a supernatural boost of faith and Peter then was able to step out of the boat in Matthew 14. And what you know about that story is as Peter steps out and he's able to walk on the water, he is doing fantastic as long as his eyes are on Jesus. And isn't that how it goes with a, a gift of faith? When the Lord puts something on our heart, when we've got our eyes on Him, man, there is no sinking us. But if you're anything like me, He gives me a word of faith or gives me a gift of faith, and then I begin to look around at all the naysayers and the circumstances. And what happens for Peter is he begins to sink because he takes his eyes off of Jesus and puts his eyes on his circumstance. And so this gift of faith is given, but it's given by the Spirit, and it's He's calling us to keep our eyes on the prize, our eyes on Jesus. Now, in modern day, we see one of the great men of faith, a guy like George Mueller, who was called to take in orphans all around Bristol, England. And what I love about George Mueller and his biography is that as he has been given this gift of faith, the way he exercised it was through prayer. You know, for George, he would gather all the orphans, hundreds of them, by the time they all gathered in uh, Bristol, and they would gather for breakfast to eat in the morning, and often they would have um, nothing to eat, not even a drop of food in the whole orphanage. And so what Mueller would do is he would walk into the cafeteria 
And he would thank the Lord for the food that they didn't have. And and not just once that he exercised faith like this, but over and over again. And invariably what would take place is a knock on the door. Lots of times before he even finished praying. And the baker had been moved by the Spirit to just drop off bread. I don't I don't know why I'm bringing this to you, but I, the, the Lord told me to drop this off. Or a milk truck would break down right outside the orphanage and literally they'd have to bring an entire truckload of milk in because the milkman would say, this is going to go bad if I don't bring this to you. And so by his faith, in simply exercising the faith through prayer, his faith was then grown. And so if we desire to be people of faith, and my goodness, we need to be a people of faith. It's best grown through exercise. It's a muscle. And so as the Lord gives us faith and we exercise the faith, He then grows us from faith to faith, you see. Now, at the end of verse 9, and to another the gifts of healings by the same Spirit. Now, you'll note with me, He's talked about uh, a gift given, but here with healings, He makes it plural. The gifts of healings by the same Spirit. And I believe Paul does that intentionally because these gifts are given individually as the Spirit decides. It's not up to the one who's had the gifts of healing previously to decide how they're going to minister it. It's through the Spirit as the Spirit so chooses that he's able to then, he or she are then able to administer these gifts of healings. And that's important because sometimes the Lord chooses to heal. And other times, He chooses not to heal. But every time, what I have found is, if He chooses to heal in this spot, and I've been blessed enough to see Him do some supernatural healings. I cannot explain the things that I've seen. But whether He chooses to heal or He doesn't choose to heal, um, He is always glorified. And so it's all about Jesus being high and lifted up in that spot. And so here you have the Apostle Paul writing this. We see through the text, he's been given the gifts of healing at various times. Yet what you know about Paul's life is he had a thorn in the flesh that three times he prayed for the Lord to remove it. And three times the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to heal you in that spot. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, you can just jot it down if you want. But here, as he's writing this letter to Timothy, he talks about a guy named Trophimus. He says, I left him back in Miletus still sick. So I'm like, well, if, if Paul could choose to administer it any way he wanted, why wouldn't he heal poor Trophimus? He just left him back in Miletus. Why? Because the Lord didn't give him the gift in that moment. So we see the gifts of healing are given at his discretion. Now, verse 10, to another, the working of miracles. And so we see the working of miracles, or this phrase is actually dynamias. It's literally translated in act of power. This is a spot where the Holy Spirit steps in and just decides to override the laws of nature completely. And so, uh, by way of example, Acts chapter 3, the Apostle Peter and John, they're making their way into the temple, headed towards the gate known as Beautiful. And as they head in there, they see a man sitting alongside the road. He's been there for years, in fact, decades, begging. He's a cripple. He's been laying there on the way into the temple and Peter looks at him. I'll go there in Acts chapter 3. And this is what Peter says as he looks at the man. He says, look at us. And the man looked at him in verse 6. 
He says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took the man by the hand and he lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And so oftentimes the gift of the working of miracles is combined together. Maybe it's with healing. Maybe it's with faith. In this story, we see both of those on display because it took faith for Peter to be able to say that, to utter those words. And here's the thing about this story that's always mesmerized me. Do you know how many times these guys had to walk past this man? I mean, time and time again, this man was laying there. He wasn't able to move around. And what's also baffling about this story is that Jesus walked past this guy. Jesus passed this guy who was in need, and yet he chose not to heal him. He had the power, he had the ability, but the timing was not right. So it's important for us to understand when it comes to healing and the working of miracles is that he will make the decision to have these things take place when the timing is right. And as the timing presented itself, here's what uh, Peter was then able to do as he made his way into the temple. He shared the gospel. If you keep reading there in Acts chapter 3, as this miracle took place, what Peter immediately did is he seized the opportunity to share the gospel. Because here's the thing, all these miracles and all these wonderful things can happen, but a miracle never saved anybody. What Romans chapter 10 says is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so, is it an opportunity for us to then share the gospel? Because any any true miracle, and the greatest miracle I've ever witnessed is the miracle of a resurrected life. Those miracles happen by the Word of God. That faith can only happen if the Word of God is presented, if it is read. And so faith comes by hearing and and hearing by the Word of God. Now, as we continue here in verse 10, and to another discerning of spirits. So another gift is the ability to be able to discern what kind of spirit is behind whatever is being shared or whoever is the one doing the sharing. And here's the valuable thing for us. As we we hope to be able to discern spirits, it's important to hold it up to the Word of God. Because what I know about the Lord is He cannot and will not contradict Himself. He will not ever contradict His Word. And so when we hear someone sharing, no matter how dynamic they might be or how powerful or how right that thing seems to be at the time, we have to hold it up to Scripture and say, does that line up with God's Word? Because if the answer is not absolutely, then we must question what the Spirit is that is sharing this information with us. And sometimes it's important to note that a wrong spirit can share an accurate truth. In fact, Acts chapter 16, this is exactly the case. Uh, Paul and Silas are going through the area of Philippi. They're sharing the gospel, and a girl begins to follow them. She's a fortune teller. She's been demon-possessed, and she cries out after these uh, two men, after Paul and Silas, and says, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. That's completely accurate. These men were servants of the Most High God. They were sharing the way of salvation. But Paul, what we're told is after several days being greatly annoyed, he he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. Why would Paul do that? This girl's a walking, talking billboard. The reason 
is because the heart behind it was wrong. The, the message was correct, but the messenger was incorrect. The spirit that was sharing these things was incorrect. And it's important for us to be able to discern the spirits that are sharing God's word to know if they're coming from a valid source or not. And so we see Paul doing just that in Acts 16. Now, as we continue at the end here of verse 10, there are different kinds of tongues and to another, the interpretation of tongues. And so we have the gift of tongues as well as the gift to be able to interpret those tongues. And so for those of you excited about this, you're going to have to wait for us to talk more about it in chapter 14. And we will talk about it. But here's what I want to share with you about tongues as a way to preface that as we lead into that, is that tongues as a gift are actually a communication from man to God. That it's a form of worship. If you see it in Scripture being used as a gift, it's always used to glorify God. It's an act of worship. And so tongues are given from man to worship the true and living God. That, as opposed to prophecy, which is given from God to transmit a message to man. Now what happens when we get these things mixed up is that we begin to try to take a word that was only intended from man to God and reverse the order and give it out to man. And if you are in a spot where someone is speaking and then interpreting in tongues, and they give you a message, I don't know, something like this. Um, Thus saith the Lord, you are all going to fry like a sausage! Um, A word of prophecy is given to edify and to comfort and build up. And I don't know about you, but I don't feel like hearing a word that I'm going to fry like a sausage is all that comforting. I don't get built up by that. And so uh, you need to question what spirit is sharing a word like that. And so we see here that a misapplication happens when we try to reverse the order of this. So a word of prophecy is from God to man. Uh, Tongues are from man to God. More on that in weeks to come. Now, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. So, regardless of the gifts, it is by His will, by His sovereign nature, that any one of us receives any gift. It is solely and completely up to the Lord. It's not a, a work of any that any one of us can do. It, it's simply up to the Lord to distribute at His will and at His discretion. Now, as I told you in the introduction, for this Corinthian church, they were so gifted. They had been given so many gifts. But the danger zone for us is, if we mistake uh, spiritual gifts for spiritual maturity. See, oftentimes we see someone and they're gifted. And maybe they're gifted as a teacher. They're gifted with the gift. Of, maybe they've been given the gifts of healing. And we see these things happen. We go, they must be so mature as a Christian. They are so far ahead as a Christian of what I am. But here's the thing. Um, Gifts are only given by His sovereign nature, not by maturity. The actual measure of a mature Christian is not gifts whatsoever. It's fruit. Do they display fruit? And by the way, I'll go to Galatians chapter 5. I want to note, they are not fruits of the Spirit. It is fruit, singular, of the Spirit. And it is spelled out by Paul. The fruit of the Spirit is love. 
the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. And when we bite into the fruit of love, it tastes like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The fruit, though, is love. And as we bite into it, it tastes like all of these different flavors that are happening. But it is so valuable for us to understand this is the sign of maturity, not giftings. You can have someone who is so very gifted, and yet they lack love completely. And you know, as a fruit inspector, that they are not a mature Christian. By the way, maybe you're someone who's been gifted, and you are struggling in the love compartment. Let me encourage you that this is a sign that you need to advance your relationship with Jesus. It's time to be more mature. It's time to grow up just a little bit because what the Lord has called us to do, John chapter 15, one last spot in Scripture, verse 16. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. What we have been called by Jesus to do is not to go and bear gifts. We've been called to go and bear fruit. And that fruit, we're told, will remain. We stay attached to the vine. And so the encouragement here is, go out and bear fruit. Allow the fruit to be displayed. And what I'll encourage you in is that the gifts will be soon to follow. What Jesus says here at the end of this verse is, that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And so as we begin to allow His fruit to be evident in our life, you know what happens? All of a sudden, uh, my will isn't for my own advantage. My only desire is to do whatever the Father wants me to do. And as I desire only to do what the Father wants me to do, um, everything that the Father wills happens. So the key to answer prayer, the key to, to having what you want to happen, happen is to bear fruit, to bear the fruit of love, and allow Him to work through us. So Father, we thank You and we praise You for needed understanding about gifts. Like a good dad, You are so excited to give us gifts and to give us good gifts. Not ones that we deserve or we earn, but just because of Your sovereign nature, You want to bless us as kids so that others can actually come to know you. Lord, I pray as you are looking towards us to give us giftings, and everyone in this room has a gift. I don't know what that is, but you know, Lord. As we pray for you to reveal what that gift is, I pray that we would be able to show our fruit to the people around us. That we'd be able to show off the fruit of love and then allow your gifts to just naturally be displayed at your will. Lord, if we don't have this, what Paul's going to say in chapter 13 is that we're nothing more than a clanging cymbal or a banging gong. <laughs> There's no point to it if we don't have love. So Father, help us to be a group that loves not only each other, but loves the world around us. In Jesus' name.